0: And that's what I want to present this morning as we turn again to Isaiah. Started this series just a few weeks ago and just seemed appropriate with the theme and with with the discussion of Revelation to go back to Isaiah. Some prophecy in the Old Old Testament that also um, reminded or that told us that there would be rejoicing in the end times. Because there's a lot of judgment. There's a lot of dark things that happen, even in the book of, of Revelation. And in a lot of prophecy, we can read um, the prophets and sometimes just maybe even give up because it just seems like it's all judgment. And, and that's certainly not the case as we look at this passage today. We're going to continue to look at passages in Isaiah about the joy of knowing God and the joy of one day being with him forever, not in a temporary sense at all, but in a permanent sense as we look forward to that. We can worship him and anticipate the kingdom that is coming. And that's what Isaiah 25 reminds us of. Now, we're going to see here the joy for our fulfilled salvation But in the chapters leading up to this passage, there has been a lot of focus on judgment. And there there is that theme in Scripture. I think you understand that. Um, It describes God's judgment on his people for their sin and for their rebellion. And God's judgment on the nations and all the people that have rejected him. Uh, Even as you finish with Isaiah 24, there is that sense of judgment where God will judge the whole world for their sin. And we see the ultimate fulfillment of that in Revelation in all its detail. And we're going to see, just preparing you for tonight, okay, uh, the final bowls of, of judgment. We're going to focus on God's judgment again tonight, his just judgment. So God has described all this, but then we get to Isaiah 25, and we see that God's people the opposite is true. Those that have trusted and follow Him will experience joy and the peace of His salvation. You know, something we all struggle with really is is sometimes we all just get, if we're honest, impatient with God. We want... God many times doesn't work within our timeline. And that's frustrating from the pastor on down. Uh, as... And what we tend to do is we we tend to slip into sometimes many times unaware of um, self-governing mode where we are in charge and we've got a schedule and we've got to have these things done. And Lord, don't you understand the importance of what I need done in my time frame and, and all these things that I'm trying to plan? Um, and we can get impatient with God. And folks, what we need to do at those times is refocus. Put our attention back on the Lord. Remember that He allows all things for the ultimate good of His church and for His people, and helping them to grow. He has a plan for all delays and all difficulties as well. Here we're going to see God's people rejoicing in something that will happen in the future, and they're hoping, I'm sure, as they rejoice in Isaiah 25, that it will be the near future. But we know. Thousands of years later, that what they're talking about, what they're rejoicing in here, we're still waiting. We still sing this song and look ahead and look forward to the coming kingdom when Jesus will defeat all of his foes. And we can get a little impatient even as we look around this dark world and just see the foundations falling apart. It's just so discouraging and difficult. Folks, we have to remember it and trust that Jesus is going to make all this right. And he will take care of all of this in the end. So, with that, we're going to look at most of Isaiah 25 today. But let's look at uh, verses 8 through 9. We'll pray and then we'll look at the whole chapter. Isaiah 25, verse 8. He will swallow up death are filled with joy. Maybe not in present circumstances and the struggles and the things that we face. There are, I'm sure, many difficult challenges for individuals in this room and in this building today. And we can be sidetracked. We can be impatient by these things, Lord. Father, we admit sometimes we get impatient for the return of Christ, As even as we read through the, the end book of the end times revelation we desire to see these things happen and have the the kingdom come because we get weary and tired but help us to remain strong help us to, with joy serve you faithfully remembering and trusting that in your time these things will happen you will wipe all tears away and we will sorrow no longer so in that in that promise help us to revel and be strong so let this time and this scripture passage encourage hearts this morning, Father, and help us to committedly serve going forward for it's in Jesus' name that we ask this, His name that we pray. Amen. Joy for our fulfilled salvation. Our salvation has been fulfilled in Christ and as in as we know from the New Testament and the Finished work of Christ. He has done everything, shed his blood, everything that is necessary for us to have his righteousness and to be saved and to look forward to the promises of the kingdom and eternity with God. All that's been accomplished. And it's through faith in Christ that we receive those blessings. Some of those blessings we receive immediately through the Holy Spirit and through the cleansing work of Christ. Some we still wait on. God's people have been waiting on a long time. And that's what this passage focuses on, is the return of the Savior, of God, to rule and reign and what he will do. And it needs to be an encouragement. But again, this can only be experienced through a relationship with Jesus Christ. Folks, you must have turned in trust, repented of sin, turned in trust to Christ, And then these blessings, some that you will receive immediately, some that are assured await us in the future, will be yours as well. And you can have that joy. Now, as we get to Isaiah 25, it does seem this is the song uh, of, of the people, but it is the leaders, the elders in particular, that lead this song. If you look at the last verse in Isaiah 24, it says, The Lord of hosts reigns on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem. And that gives us the context for Isaiah 25, this is the Messiah that has been expected and is described here as he reigns in his holy city on the holy mountain. And when that happens, his glory, he will show himself before the leaders, his elders. And they, it seems best to interpret it this way, will lead the people in this song and in this praise that we have in Isaiah 25. Praise is the joyful response to God's protection. And folks, we need to praise God that one day, that he will protect us, but one day the whole world will turn and recognize him as king. And that is the whole world that has put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Remember the winnowing time of judgment um, that we've seen in Revelation and through throughout Isaiah, but there will come a point that the people that are left on this earth will all turn and praise God. That will be at the beginning of the millennial kingdom. And so here we have the song. Verse one. Oh, Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name for you have done wonderful things. Plans formed of old, faithful, sure. God's people, even though they're assuredly being led as a group, they're speaking as individuals. This is each individual saying experientially, Lord, you are my God. I see that. I see what Christ has done. He's standing before me in his glory, and I recognize that he has done all this for me and for his glory. And so, Lord, you are my God. You are my personal God. I have personal experience and have personally experienced your salvation. And because of that, I will exalt you. I claim you as my own. And the idea of exalting means to raise one up above oneself, to make one one conspicuous over oneself so that people understand that in my life, This is the one that you need to focus on, not me, but on the God of heaven who has saved me. And I exalt him for all to see. I don't want to lift myself up. I want to lift God up. And I will do that. And I will praise your name. And this praise in the Hebrew includes a description of the works of the one being praised. When people praise God in this way, you can expect that there will be a list of the things that he has done. And we will have that. Here throughout the rest of this passage in Isaiah, he's going to be praised. They praise his name. His name is the whole character and the whole being of who he is. And all of this will be lifted up among his people as they see the fulfillment of their salvation. And it reminds us he has done wondrous works, he's worked in wondrous ways indeed. And he has throughout all of church history, throughout all of history, since the beginning of creation, and eternity past, eternity future. One way that the Old Testament describes eternity past is in the end of this verse, plans formed of old, faithful, and sure. And this, you could say it this way. We kind of, we, we kind of use this vernacular still today when someone comes and questions what something is uh why we're doing something or when something was first thought of many times if people have planned ahead they say well these decisions were made a long time ago there's no way we're changing them okay because these have been established well that is one way that the author that Isaiah here uses to describe the fact that god has had his plans Not in a point in the past, but throughout all eternity past, these things have been established. He has always planned to do these things. And so truly, they were a long time ago, eternity past, beyond what we can even think about, right? It's hard to comprehend that, and it blows our minds. But because of that, God's designs and his plans, we can fully rely on them. For they're faithful and sure, reliable and faithful. What does that mean? That whatever God allows into our lives, his plans are wonderful, folks. We can depend upon what God is doing in our lives. And one day when Jesus returns and this glorious um, picture will be reality, we can look back and experientially say, yeah, all those things that happened, God really was using those. But maybe it's better not to be surprised by some of that. And today in the present, have the attitude, yeah, whatever God's doing, they're wondrous. I can depend upon him. I can trust even if things don't make sense, and I will exalt him. I won't focus on myself, but I'll exalt my Savior. I'll exalt the God of heaven. That is a right response in worship, even as we gather together today. Well, he continues, certainly. And here's those wonderful things that he mentioned in the first verse, or the elders have mentioned. For you have made the city a heap, the fortified city a ruin. The foreigner's palace is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. This has the idea of the strongholds, the towers, the military fortresses of the foreigners. Now, as we go through, we're going to continue to hear about this concept of the foreigner. And we hear it throughout Isaiah and sometimes in the psalm. This isn't a negativity toward people that don't live in our country, folks. It's not talking about foreigners that aren't a part of our nationality or a part of our our political system or whatever. But when God is not, in other words, bashing the foreigner here, don't misunderstand. But he is saying when he says when the word foreigner is used, it refers to um, those that have refused to worship God, those that are not reliable at all, because they refuse to make God their own, And they refuse to worship him in the way that God's people do. And so that way they're foreign to God's people. It's really what that means there. And so these foreigners have tried to come up with their own strongholds and um, their own safeguards. And they're going to find that those strong towers and those military fortresses and whatever they rely on besides God for their strength are not reliable at all. In fact, God will tear all these things down. They'll make their powerful cities literally a heap, uh, a heap of destruction. If you've ever seen um, these uh, construction workers, our boys always love to do this, when they're demolishing a building and they set those explosives below just right so that it almost comes down perfectly in this wonderful, this well, wonderful, if if you're a little boy watching this, it's pretty remarkable, It just straight down in this cloud of dust, uh, and it's totally demolished. It's just a heap afterwards. In a more awful sense, we can still think of nine eleven and the towers that came down um, in that terrorist attack. And we look at the pictures of of, of that those towers in a heap. But folks, that is what God will do with all the fortifications of those who have rejected Him at some point, and He will make them a heap. This for the fortified city, a ruin. Um. Again, the idea of a strong city that these folks that have rejected God say, no one can penetrate or get past our defenses. We we can defend these, and uh, we have a strong net of safety here, and we are secure. And God says, no, you've rejected me. You're on unstable ground. I'll make your most fortified, your largest, your most impressive city I'll bring it to the ground in ruin. The foreigner's palace is a city no more. The palaces of where powerful rulers dwelt, where they think that they dwell in safety, and they think that they have a stronghold that even God can't um, take down. God will make it clear that He is fully able to do that. And they those palaces will be brought to the ground as well. And these strong people that live in these places. And the Bible does indicate that these these are powerful people, that God has allowed them to be powerful and strong and to have these defenses for a while. But there will come a point where all the people that have rejected God, as strong as they are, will look at the devastation around them, and they will recognize that God truly is all-powerful, and he is the one that they should have put their faith in. And they're looking at all the things that they did put their faith in. And they're uh, meaningless. They're destroyed. They're rubble around them. And it will take that, this end time judgment for people to say, wow, God was really serious about that. Yes, he was. And this could very well, verse 3, describe um, these powerful people that turn to God. Let's read, therefore strong. Uh, Hebrew they're powerful, people that truly were, from a human standpoint, powerful in their strength and in their position, they will glorify. And remember what that word is in Hebrew, a very important word. That means they will treat God with the full weight of glory that he deserves. They, They treated him lightly before. They didn't respect him. They didn't reverence him. They didn't fear him. But at this moment, As his kingdom is about ready to take place, these strong peoples will realize the full value and weight of God, and they will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations, that really is the picture of peoples, enemy nations that just were inspiring terror with everyone around them, that were cruel, that were powerful that didn't care what they did in order to um, claim and maintain their power, these nations will turn to God and will reverence and fear him and no longer exalt themselves. God's people need to today exalt him. One day, all peoples will exalt God. That will take, again, the end of the revelation and all the terrible judgments that we will even see tonight. Um, but God will refine the people and they will, and and these will turn to him. Either this verse three could um, be referring to these people that, that will recognize, even though they, they don't claim him as King, they will recognize, wow, that's right. God is powerful. I can't deny that. And maybe they still reject him. But I think this, this personally, this, um, describes those that turn to him not just physically but in their hearts as well and they turn toward god and recognize him as king turn to jesus christ god will bring to fulfillment the humbling of all world power and because of that folks we can confidently praise him and put our dependence in him, knowing that that's true well Also, we can praise God for his protection from these oppressors. And verse 4 through 5 remind us of that. For you have been a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy in his distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. And for the breath of the ruthless is like a storm against a wall, like heat in a dry place. And now God is praised for his defense of the helpless. He is being described as the one true safe house, the strong tower. All of these other enemies had built these strong, impressive cities and forts and towers and palaces, and God raised them all to the ground. And in this, his people realized he was really the only true fortress the whole time. And we put our faith in all these other things. So don't don't we have to be careful today about putting too much faith and confidence in our own country as much as we love our country and as much as we care and as much as we're, um, we're really broken and we grieve over the brokenness and the spiritual destitution of our nation. It's also a reminder that maybe we've been having too much confidence in our country. And it's, it's, Um, ramifications and in its strong towers and in its strong cities. And maybe God's also reminding his people that one day we will turn to him, not to the president of the United States or, or our favorite city in this country. Those will not last, but God will always be there. And we need to make sure at all times, regardless of what happens in New Hampshire or in the United States of America, that our confidence is in Christ. And that he is our strong tower. Regardless of what happens, we will be secure in him. And his people recognize that. A stronghold to the poor. The poor has the idea of he gives help to shelter to the helpless and destitute. Those that have no ability to meet their own needs at all, he will provide help for them. And those who have great need, a stronghold to the needy in his distress. Basically, the, the people. Uh, is describing people that are bound and restricted by their lack of resources. They're held captive. And they've been reminded here that God will provide for them. And in a couple of verses, he'll provide for them in a miraculous and marvelous way. See, the threat of the enemy is real. And yet God, in that that third part of verse 4, he will be a shelter from the storm. We have a storm outside today, kind of. Not a lot of thunder and lightning, but a lot of rain. Maybe it was hard to drive here today to get here. There's a storm outside, and yet here we are protected in the midst of that. That's a picture of what Isaiah is pointing out. And these elders, that we are sheltered from the worst kinds of storms that beat upon us and that cause us anxiety, know our relationship with God will be that shelter. And the shade from the heat, when things heat up and get uncomfortably hot in our lives. We all have that picture where um, we, on a very hot day, especially when you're working and you're sweating and all these things, and you just want a little bit of relief, just water and a little bit of shade. And all of a sudden, a cloud comes overhead and brings that shade, and you're able to go under a tree and think, like, oh, 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 that feels so good, or that water, that lemonade, or, or whatever. Ultimately, folks, God is our shade from the heat of what we experience in life. And he will rep- bring refreshment for us as well. Because it is true. The threat of the enemy is real. And that's what he's describing here in the last part of verse 4 and the first part of verse 5. The breath of the ruthless is like a storm against a wall. It, and here it has the picture even of the enemy getting so close that the walls may even start to shake. Or tremble, react against the storm, like heat in a dry place where there's no refreshment. The power of the enemy, the threat of the enemy is real. But even at the last moment, as they get close, it seems like sometimes God allows the enemy in situations to get really close and allow us to be really uncomfortable. And then at the last minute, he kind of swoops in and takes care of it. Have you ever experienced that? Lord, help me now. Lord, please hurry up. And God says, just wait. And sometimes it's a little uncomfortable for us. Lord, did you have to wait that long? But salvation will come. And even if the enemy is on is at the threshold, God is able to subdue. That's what the rest of verse 5 says. You subdue the noise of the foreigners. Lord, the war cry. They're getting closer. The enemy is getting closer. Please help. Please deliver us. And he says, I will in the right time. And he will subdue. He will quiet down the war cry cry of those that have rejected him as heat by the shade of a cloud. He will at some point bring refreshment in the uncomfortableness of our trials and our difficulties, that intense heat, maybe spiritual pressure. God will be our shade. So the song of the ruthless is put down. And the world has its songs of dominance and defiance against God. The other day at a baseball game that we were at, I heard, in um, a Little League game, I heard um, one of the parents bringing some music. that he, It was just, you know, offensive. It, it was oppressive to my own spirit as they blared this music while the kids were practicing or whatever. And it was supposed to be a song of defiance and, and victory and all these things. And it was just a song of oppression to me as as I had to listened to it. And then it was shut off and there was that relief. And it was kind of a picture to me. Is a remembrance that all of the defiant songs of the world will one day be silenced and only be the beauty, the beautiful, victorious song of the Savior of God that will be heard. The song of the ruthless and defiant will be put down and be silenced, never to be heard from again. And spiritual refreshment will come our way. Well, also, praise is a joyful response to God's salvation. And we praise God that he will sustain his people and he will give them great blessings. And now we have some of the blessings described uh, and some of the things that God will have prepared for us as we enter into the kingdom. Verse 6, on this mountain, here we have a specific geographical location, again reminding us that this will take place. The Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, feast of well aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. Here we have a picture of the people that representative of the whole world, all peoples. Now, this doesn't mean a universal salvation. We've already seen that those that have rejected God will be dealt with. And we see that in Revelation. In fact, tonight we're going to see the uncomfortable the distressing picture of the intensity of God's um, wrath upon people, and they still rebel against him. So that will happen. So this isn't describing the universal salvation of all people, but those peoples that are left after God's judgment will turn, and they will be people of the whole world. They'll turn to God, and they'll enjoy extravagant blessing, not just the Jewish nation. But all those, the Gentiles as well, who have trusted in Christ. Here, this blessing is described as a full banquet of rich food and drink. Now, I know that we haven't had lunch yet. And even hearing some of this may make you a little hungry. I haven't heard any stomachs growling yet. I'll try not to uh, to pause or to land on this too much. But it does describe wonderfully the blessings that we have that we'll be able to experience as, um, a, again, a Full table filled with blessings here described as food and drink, and all those then who have turned to God as sovereign Lord will be delivered, even in death, from the judgment of God, and they will enjoy this blessings of God, this great feast, um, rich food. Now remember, when it says well aged wine, we might start to think, oh, you know, like uh, modern wines, like a Chardonnay or or something like that well you know I can't think of a lot of names for wine because I'm not that experienced in am so sorry but remember uh, what they're referring to here is uh, people in, in Old Testament and New Testament times would prepare the wine in such a way uh, that it it would involve there would be fermentation involved but it would be mixed with water But it was true that even as that wine was prepared, before it was mixed with water, it was especially um, considered good if it was uh, filtered beforehand through numerous different ways that they did this. So this was uh, a drink that was uh, refined and filtered through. There were no um, concerns with drinking it, no strange particles or, or things like that. But it was just a good drink all the way around. This is what this is described uh, for us one day as well. Basically, the whole idea that God will provide rich blessings for his people. Okay, that's really what we ought to see here. Uh, full of morrow means full of nutrition. And I don't think we should think of this as like gluttony as well. I don't know if, I, you know, I remember as a child going to uh, restaurants. And when I was really young, they didn't have the Golden Corral yet, right? At least not that I was aware of or whatever. And we, our parents would many times take us to this place. It was called Western Sizzler, maybe, or, or I think the other one's called Ponderosa. And you had the big salad bars, and you had a lot of soda. And I remember in the salad bars, there was a lot of Jello and pudding, you know, more than we'd ever seen before. And that seemed like a lot to us. And then you would order steak or something on the side, so you get the full benefit of that. Well, you know, that was cool. And we could go up to the sodas and we always mixed our sodas and, you know, and all these different fluorescent colors and things. And I don't know what possessed us to even think we could drink it afterwards. And we had nasty names for it and things. But it was just this overabundance of all of this food and drink. Just we were marveling at it. Wow, I can't believe. Well, my whole perspective changed. When my first semester at Pensacola Christian College, I was introduced to a place right across the street called Brian's Country Buffet. And that not only had all the salads and all the drinks and everything, but it actually had all the entrees, too. You had a table just for vegetables. And there were fried vegetables. Now, I'm really making you hungry, right? fried okra and things and it was just it was almost mind-blowing and then you go to another and there was all these meats And it was like wow they really do have everything here and it it was just it, it was an experience that stuck out in my mind that was amazing to me and as a college student it didn't have a lot of money but somebody would take you out there and they would pay for you and you could get whatever you wanted it was just marvelous wonderful and you always ate too much Well. This will be marvelous, but I don't want us to have a picture of gluttony here. That we're all sitting around in heaven as gluttons. We'll eat what we need, and I think we will certainly in the kingdom of Christ. We'll have opportunity to eat. Even Jesus in His new body, if you remember, ate fish. Um, We will eat, but we will only eat that that we need. But we will be satisfied. Is the point here beyond any buffet? or anything else, God will satisfy us. He will sustain us. And God, we can praise him because he will make his people glad as well. Verse 7 through 9, And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. And here, besides rich blessing, I think we have described in these verses the full deliverance of God's people. This veil that's described here and this covering, I think, is a picture of being delivered from sin and death. The covering of the blindness of sin, that even as God's people, we still, as uh, servants of God that have been saved by the blood of Christ, we're still, folks, so blind to our sin, so many times, we can't even see it. One day that blindness will be totally removed, that covering that is cast over all of us. People, um, God will take away the reproach from their sin that we see in verse eight. The veil, also the idea of um, the veil of the fear of death that we still have. Even God's people, we don't like to think about death. We don't like to talk about it much because there's a fear. There's a a, um, opposition toward it that's understandable. Really, remember, death is not natural. Death is a result of the fall and of sin. And that fear, that veil that spread over all will be taken away. And he, verse 8, this wonderful, wonderful verse, he will swallow up death forever. He will totally eradicate, swallow up death for all eternity. don't have to worry about that anymore, ever again. Never have to go through the death of a loved one, the sickness, the illness, the sorrowing of that. God will take it all away. We look forward to that day, don't we? And all the tears that are shed over death and our sin will be wiped away, never to return as well. That beautiful verse, um, the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. As we recognize that final salvation, those final tears, Maybe tears of joy, I don't know in the future, but those tears of sorrow over death and sin will never be shed again, folks. That alone, do you believe that promise? If you believe that promise, that will encourage you today. That will give you joy. That's the purpose of this. Revelation will see that again mentioned and we'll know that will happen because God's end time um plan is to deal with all of these things but here we have this concept all the way back in Isaiah that one day we will cry and sorrow no more and the reproach here of sin of his people he will take away from all the earth no more guilt no more sorrow no more wondering lord did i did i do that right or did i oh i'm so i'm so weak and i i just i mess things up and all that will be taken taken away and will live in confident um, service and righteousness for all eternity. Wow, is that really possible? Can that really be? Can God really do that? The end of the verse says, yes, he can, because he said he will. So no excuses. Believe it. The Lord has spoken. That is saying, believe it. It's done. It's as good as done. And because of that, then, here comes the joy on that day when his kingdom is established, the inauguration of God's kingdom, and all these things take place. God's people will rejoice and sing. Verse 9, it will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. And again, what's the ultimate? who is the ultimate fulfillment of, of this? The Messiah, Jesus Christ. He is the one that we've been waiting for. He is our God. And all of the people that are there will say this and recognize this. What's that old song? It will be worth it all when we see Jesus. Isn't that kind of sum up all that we see here? Our hope is that when we see this picture, we're promised that we will see him. And it will be worth it all, folks. Listen to the joy. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. It seemed like we waited for him forever. Maybe we would say today, it seems like he'll never get here. But wait, be patient. He will. And when he is, we will be glad and rejoice in his salvation. They'll look upon him and be glad and rejoice that our, their Savior is present with them. And they're prepared through Christ's righteousness for him to be present with them. And he will be with them for all eternity. I used to love the days when I would go on long trips and come home sometimes late maybe it was a trip to the wilds or to a um seminar down at at the wilds camp or, or different things where i was away with with the pastor on a trip and come home and sometimes even if it was a little later at night leslie would let the boys stay up when they were younger and i would go through the door and there'd be an immediate cheer and the little guys would come running. And they would all grab me and some would grab a little too hard and I could barely breathe. But I love that. I love that And of, of small children rejoicing that their dad is finally home and that he's back in their presence. And then they get older and, well, they rejoice in other ways. Good to see you, Dad. <laughs> but you enjoy those times. They're, they bring joy and gladness to your heart. Because people are expressing the fact that they missed you and they love you. Well, what joy will it be when we see Jesus return and see and face with things? It will be beyond any kind of joy of that nature that we've ever experienced before. So it will even be more intense than little boys excited about their dad being home. We will rejoice and be glad. And then really the rest of the passage here is a contrast. God's protective hand on his people. Look at verse 10. The hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain. That doesn't mean in judgment. That means God will, his hand will rest on his people. And they will have peace and security and rest. And nothing will happen to them anymore. But what will happen to those that have rejected God? That's described specifically, here described as Moab. It's a reminder there will be specific nations that will be judged because they've rejected God. Not just Moab, but representative of all nations that have rejected God. In contrast to the peace and rest of God's people, Moab shall be trampled down in his place. Very vivid, disgusting picture here. as straw is trampled down in a dunghill, and he, Moab, will spread out his hands in the midst of it as a swimmer spreads his hands out to swim. He'll still in defiance try to get out and try to rely on himself to get himself out of the situation. And he won't be able to do it because the Lord has laid him low. A pompous pride together with the skill of his hands, still self-reliant till the end, refuses to depend upon God, and he'll be made low. All people that reject God and are self-dependent will be made low. And the high fortifications of his walls will be brought down, laid low, cast to the ground, to the dust. Aren't you glad you're a part of God's people? Don't we have so much to be thankful for and to look forward to? We can experience victory now over sin. One day we'll experience victory over sin and death and Satan for all eternity. We truly have much to be thankful for and we have much to be joyful over. Our salvation is fulfilled now. We're saved of our sin. Our salvation will be filled throughout eternity in the new life that we'll receive through Christ. Don't be discouraged. Have hope and joy. Father, thank you for this reminder that whatever we face will be worth it all when we see Jesus. Let that be of ultimate encouragement to us, this passage. We look forward to the day when we will by sight sing and praise Jesus for all that he has done for us. But in the meantime, we still have spiritual sight that can remind us, the Holy Spirit reminding us through your word that we have victory in Jesus, who's overcome the world. Let us not be discouraged or despondent, but trusting in your plan, even if unexpected things take place, knowing the end of the story and rejoicing and looking forward to Jesus' return. Help us to be confident and serve you faithfully. In Jesus' name that we pray, amen.